energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then this is the show for you. Join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. Nearly 800 million people globally live without any access to electricity, three quarters of them in sub-Saharan Africa. Almost half of the world's population lives without reliable access to power with frequent outages interrupting their daily lives. We take it for granted that we'll wake up and turn on our lights, charge our phone and switch on our TV. The consumption deficit between Africa and some parts of the world is staggering. The average Nigerian consumes less than a third of the electricity each year than a moderately efficient American refrigerator. Sub-Saharan Africa has a persistent lack of electricity access in part due to massive underinvestment in electricity infrastructure. Most of the public electric utilities are loss-making with limited ability to maintain existing assets or invest in new ones. This hampers top-down growth in power supply and improvements in the availability, reliability, and affordability of power. But where there's adversity, there's also opportunity. And in this edition of the Horizons podcast, we explore the $350 billion opportunity Africa has to achieve universal electricity access on the continent. This is episode six of Horizons. Let's get into it. So with that, it's truly my pleasure to introduce two amazing guests who will help us understand how Africa is remaking the grid. First up, joining me today is Benjamin Atia, author of The Horizons Report and a principal research analyst here at Wood Mackenzie. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Liz. I am a big fan of the bottom line up front, or BLUF as it's sometimes called. So getting right into it, what is one thing you think everyone should know about Africa and their grid? So Africa currently has a really major electricity access deficit, um, but there's a whole host of new utility business models being piloted off the grid using decentralized renewable energy. And a lot of the implications of those changes in business models will actually start to trickle back to advanced electricity markets around the world, such that electric utilities will actually transform from just selling electricity in kilowatt hours to actually selling a lot of adjacent goods and services right alongside that and becoming customer-centric service providers uh, to their to their consumers. Awesome. And also joining us today is William Brent, the Chief Marketing Officer for Husk Power Systems. William, thank you also for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Liz. Great to be here. What is one thing you think everyone should know about Africa and their grid? Well, first of all, I would say Africa is not, you know, a place. It's a collection of places. So the grid in different countries in Africa is actually quite different uh, depending on where you go. So I would start there. But I also think it's interesting, you know, that uh, Africa, a lot of people talk about the leapfrog in telecommunications going from hardwire to mobile. Uh, I think people try to draw a correlation between that and the energy market. Um, you see in the U.S. and Europe now many countries moving back to more decentralized solutions, the community solar microgrids. I think Africa, you know, has a chance to um, actually integrate those those types of solutions from the ground up uh, and advance a, a vision for what energy systems look like for the future um, without having to integrate too much of the legacy ideas and concepts and infrastructure that that we're burdened with in in the West, for example. 
So I'm really excited to get into it. I have a whole bunch of topics I want to cover today. First off, I'm curious what types of trends we're seeing very broadly that are starting to shape the future of electricity demand and growth in Africa. Ben, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yeah. So in the paper, we identified three sort of main trends that are sort of structurally transforming Africa's electricity demand. And first to agree with Will that when we say Africa, we're using that as a shorthand to represent literally 1.1 billion people, 54 countries, uh, and huge thousands and thousands of people groups, right? So we're, we're really making some generalizations here. But for the sake of time, across the region, we see sort of a few main trends. One is structural economic transformation, which is that you know, some of the fastest growing economies uh, exist in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and many of these economies are sort of still in their growth stage. So these, these emerging markets, which have historically been sort of commodity market driven and export driven, um, are actually starting to transform their economies, partially due to increased access to electricity, um, to actually be able to improve GDP at very high levels over the coming decades. Next to that is urbanization. Uh, so there will be about 2 billion urban Africans by 2050. Um, three of the 10 largest cities in the world will be in sub-Saharan Africa. And you know this, this means that there's going to be an increased demand for urban electricity, right? And that means public services, electric transport, public utility infrastructure, and then serving you know the, the manufacturing that will come uh, alongside that. And then the third one, of course, is population explosion and demographics, right? So by 2050, one in every four people in the world uh, will be African. And by 2100, there will be uh, the only region in the world that will still have population growing uh, will be sub-Saharan Africa. So, so if you just kind of project these trends out a few decades, a lot of these sort of fundamentals that will drive the electricity demand picture of the region are already well underway. And, and in some sense, is sort of you know, inevitable or unstoppable or undeniable in the fact that you know, the amount of population growth that we're seeing, the amount of job creation, the amount of economic growth, and the amount of rapid urbanization uh, will bring some, some challenges, but mainly will bring a huge sort of fundamental shift in the electricity demand picture for, for pretty much every country in the region. Wow. By 2050, one in every four people will be in Africa. Did I hear that right? Will be African. Yeah, that's right. Wow. That is staggering. And just to think about the d diversity of geography of, wow, of Africa, that my mind is already blown. And that was the very first question. Nigeria is supposed to be the fourth most populous country in the world, I think, by 2040 or something like that. And with those sharp increases in population come huge need for electricity, which, I mean, is exactly what we're going to talk about. But I don't think that the average listener to this podcast probably appreciates just what a powerhouse Africa is going to be as we talk about the energy transition. Yeah, I think one of the things that's important to realize and one of the ways that I, I think it's important to frame conversation around the continent and around the region is that, you know, there's there's a huge amount of sort of fundamental and structural growth that's coming for the region. And a lot of that is going to be underpinned by, you know, the need for massive public and private investment in electricity infrastructure. But if you kind of look a few decades out, a lot of forecasts, a lot of expectations around what the energy transition is going to look like. Look at you know the whole region of Africa and all of its nuance and all of its countries and people and you know economic growth that's coming. And then also even more generally, look at emerging markets around the world as somewhat of a rounding error in the total picture of electricity demand and energy demand and what that transition is going to look like. 
And I see the transitions kind of looking a little bit differently. So in heavily electrified, high energy demand, you know, maybe we would call post-industrial or advanced electricity economies, the energy transition is truly a transition, right? It is, you know, we, we are substituting dirtier, more expensive carbon emitting fuels for cleaner ones. And that means, you know, in, in the power sector and also in other parts of the economy, we need to decarbonize. In emerging markets in sub-Saharan Africa, where electricity access is, is still in the deficit, um, and there's still a, you know, a massive gap between supply and demand, this energy transition is a little bit more additive rather than substitutionary. So rather than saying we're going to take what we already have and demand might increase a little bit and the grid will you know, need to accommodate EVs and these sorts of things, we're actually saying there's going to be a massive total increase in electricity demand. And that supply needs to follow that and, in fact, surpass it, right? So the, the structure of those transitions looks a little bit different. But a lot of times expectations about the future of the energy transition sort of disregard or, or maybe discount or don't fully realize um, what some of these macroeconomic trends will do. And, and it's really Africa and the rest of the sort of emerging markets are, are really sort of a missing piece in this energy transition puzzle. And it's, it's something that I'm trying to sort of call attention to in the paper and shed a little bit more light on to be able to say that, you know, look, this is actually a really big piece of the puzzle. And it, it actually, from a from a total demand perspective, is a lot bigger than, than a lot of people realize. And from a business model perspective, there's a lot of lessons um, that are sort of being initially piloted and proven, you know, beyond the grid uh, in, in the region. Is it okay if I jump in for a second here, Ben? Just because I think, you know, I, for me as, as well, you know, if you look at um, Africa today, I think it is probably one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting market, right? You know, despite all the challenges that that, that um, companies face there. So absolutely, I think that not on the innovation front, on the finance front, I think there's just going to be so much that happens uh, in the energy space in Africa that's going to have implications for uh, not just Africa, but for the rest of the world. Um, on the transition, you know, so Husk Power, we work almost entirely in rural communities, some peri-urban. And in those communities, because the grid and the extension of the grid has essentially failed uh, the, these types of communities uh, in Africa and other parts of Asia for decades, there's been the emergence of a huge diesel generation economy, right? And so you, when you think about transitions, you also have to think about the transition away from that diesel generation economy. It's needed, right? I mean, that level of generation to, is needed in rural communities to power productivity and, and business, et cetera. And so I think that's, that's an important transition that people often forget uh, in Africa, where you know, the diesel generation uh, infrastructure is so huge, right? And that, that is a transition that will happen in the rural context. The other thing I wanted to just sort of go back to Ben's discussions around trends was, you know, he mentioned the importance of public-private partnership, and I think that's going to be essential uh, in countries in Africa, where many of whom are not entirely comfortable with that. And I think that that's going to be a, a dynamic that is really worth watching. And then the last thing I would just add, again, rural context where we work, you know, the last decade in Africa was spent really around providing the, the most basic level of electricity, lighting, mobile phone charging, the 2020s, both from a, a national government perspective, a donor perspective, an investor perspective, it's going to be much more about providing you know, higher levels, productive levels of, of energy so that it's not just you know, basic lighting for the household, but it's actually power that can power an economy and generate growth and generate jobs. So I think that's another trend to, to keep an eye on. And that, that's a huge distinction right there. There's 
a lot to unpack. Before we get too far ahead, William, can you tell us a little bit more about Husk's work and the energy model that you operate in Africa? Sure. Well, so Husk uh, was probably the pioneer of the mini grid or microgrid industry starting in 2008 in India. Our CEO, Manoj Sinha, is from India. He comes from a community there where, you know, essentially he grew up without electricity. So he was inspired by that childhood to, to really try and create a change, not just in India, but across any communities that were, you know, lacking basic energy services. So, you know, fast forward 13 years, we're now the mini grid company with the, the, the most mini grids. Well, the, the only company that I'm aware of that's both active in Asia and Africa and able to share learnings between those two markets, which is a huge advantage. We have the, we believe, the largest fleet of, of mini grids in operation over around 150, and we want to grow that by 10x over the next four to five years. And, you know, we started as a power supplier. Uh, energy supplier. But to Ben's earlier point, you know, we're now looking at, at very much at, at integrating other types of services on the back of that energy in the communities where we work. So it could be clean drinking water, it could be agro-processing, cold storage, e-mobility. Um, so it's it's energy plus. And, you know, this is a, a big year for the mini-grid industry. And I think it's going to be an b- even bigger decade for the industry. And I think, you know, so Husk sees itself as on the the front lines of that coming wave. So for listeners who maybe are not familiar with mini grids, distributed infrastructure, which honestly, if you are not, Google that. It is some of the most fascinating and impactful technology out there. William, can you just give a high level overview of what a mini grid is? Yeah. So essentially for us, it's it's a it could be one of three things, or it's a combination of three things. It's a solar array that's mounted on the ground in a fenced in area with a control room that's maybe 30 to 50 kilowatts. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but anyway, it's a small scale, you know, uh, solar array. And then transmission lines that we run to the communities where we where, where we establish them. And the mini grids themselves generate electricity from the solar panels, but also we have a battery bank that is able to provide electricity at night. And for some of the sites, we also integrate a biomass gasification system so if you have solar during providing electricity during the day, you have waste biomass that's gasified and powers a turbine to generate electricity in the evening, and then you have batteries as backup at the night, you've got a 24-7 fully renewable solution that can power these communities. That is so cool. <laughs> Thinking a little bit more broadly, so Africa is going to need a lot more electricity over the coming years. How can they make the most of the opportunity to build clean energy infrastructure to keep up with this demand? Ben, you talked a little bit about how they're in this unique paradigm where instead of going on their energy transition journey of having to clean up where they already are, they don't have that energy debt. They really have a fresh slate to start from. So how can they leverage this opportunity to really start clean, whether it's through using things like mini grids or beyond? Yeah, I think there's a few elements there. And first one I'll say is back to Will's point from before, there's a huge opportunity beyond the grid for diesel displacement. So there is a portion of Africa's energy transition, again, Africa, broadly speaking, where this value proposition is is really strong. Um, So we actually mentioned this in the paper too. And we've done some modeling to look at forecasted levelized costs from diesel versus what it costs to use the grid when it is available versus what it costs to use captive solar generation. And the modeling we did there was for sort of a small or medium-sized commercial customer. 
but the dichotomy between the solar is already more competitive than the grid and it's it's way more competitive than diesel generation like sometimes by a factor of like a third or a half or even a quarter in some cases of of that um the difference between the cost of diesel, the cost of the grid, and the cost of solar uh, is is really wide. Uh, so solar is way more competitive than the grid, and it's also even more competitive than diesel generation. Diesel generation is extremely costly. The cost is rising as diesel fuel costs go up, and it's often unpredictable. So for commercial customers who are trying to rely on diesel, it's very difficult for them to forecast what their electricity cost is actually going to be, partially because sometimes they use the grid when it's available, but the outages are often unpredictable. And then when the grid is not available the diesel kicks in. So knowing what portion of your power will come from the grid versus what will come from diesel and what the cost of the diesel fuel is going to be and how many hours a day you're going to need it, it becomes very difficult for a business to forecast that line item in their costs. If you're off the grid uh, and you're relying on diesel 100% of the time, that diesel price in most markets in the region is, in some cases, it's subsidized. In some cases, that subsidy has recently been repealed, such as in Nigeria. And actually, that cost is is going up over time. While on the flip side, solar costs have come down about 90-something percent, 90 to 95 percent over the last decade or so. They're continuing to fall uh, with a little bit of maybe lag this year due to some commodity prices that have been upended and the craziness that we're seeing in commodity markets today. And storage, battery storage costs are following a pretty similar trajectory. So the gap is already very large and it's actually getting bigger. Um, So on the diesel front, uh, there is a massive opportunity for diesel displacement. And then beyond that, sort of starting clean to, to go back to your original question, we actually think that, you know, when you're looking off the grid and you're starting, you know, with no grid connection or you're starting with a diesel connection, the the value proposition for decentralized, clean, renewable energy solutions is is really strong because you are displacing something. So if you don't have an electricity, if you don't have electricity access, you're getting your energy from kerosene or from biomass or very, very costly, very dangerous, very you know, with serious health and local pollution impacts, and then also poor quality energy, right? So kerosene can provide some lighting, but it can't charge your phone, right? Um, so the value proposition on cost, on quality, on opportunity for, for productivity is, is extremely high. And then on the grid too, Africa's grid writ large across the region actually is a lot greener than most other parts of the world. There's a lot of dependence on hydropower. And and a lot of these countries actually have relatively small grids at the moment. So even building just a few utility scale renewables projects actually gets the percentage of clean power on their grid to be quite high quite fast. So if you have a relatively small grid and you've built a few projects, you you can get to 15, 20, even 25% clean power on the grid relatively quickly. What that does mean is that some of those utilities will face issues about balancing variable renewable power a good bit faster than we might in, you know, in some markets in the West or in, or in Europe where you have to build hundreds of projects to start to run into some of those issues about balancing the grid. So it's a multifaceted issue. It kind of depends on which segment of the market you're looking at. But the cost picture is sort of undeniable. And that means that there's a massive opportunity in each of those segments. So how do you think Africa can ensure it doesn't miss out on the opportunity to revolutionize its grid with renewables and increase reliability and accessibility to its population? William, I know earlier you had teed up public and private partnerships as one possible option. Are there more or do you think partnerships are going to be one of the key opportunities here? What do you think, William? Yeah, we're, we're in an era where partnership is going to define pretty much every industry and the ability to leverage those partnerships. For sure, it's going to happen and need to happen in the energy space. But maybe just backing up for one second, you know, um, talking about the broader issue here about 
the whole climate situation and where we are in terms of climate finance, you know, one of the, the things that African countries are being asked to do is to make the transition today, even though they are contributing, you know, the smallest amount of emissions to uh, cause climate change in the first place, while also housing the most clim climate vulnerable populations in the world that are going to, you know, be the ones who suffer most from the, the climate shocks that we're already starting to see. So, you know, there's, there's what the, the African governments can do themselves, but there's also what has to have, uh, what, what needs to be part of that solution is what the international community needs to do as well. And there's been a significant amount of climate finance, both on the mitigation and adaptation sides that has been promised to these countries for good reason. Uh, that has not been delivered to date. So that that capital, that finance needs to be delivered as promised and and mobilized. Where the the African governments, I think, are going to have the hardest time um, figuring out what what they're going to have the hardest time figuring out is how to absorb that finance, um, especially if you're trying to uh, create a, an ecosystem that provides or creates bankable businesses, right? So if you buy, in, if you're African government and you buy into this notion of public-private partnership, then you've also got to build an ecosystem that allows the banking system, domestic banking system, transportation, logistics, all of these things are integral to the success of this transition that, that Ben's talking about, right? And so the absorption capacity within these countries to, to take on that finance uh, is limited today, right? And so, you know, that it's, you can't look at it purely as, a, as an energy issue. It's an integrated policy issue, and in, energy is just part of that. So I think that, you know, Nigeria is a great example where, you know, they see the energy sector as led by private enterprise whether it's the the grid or decentralized uh, solutions like like husk and that's going to be really interesting to see whether it works right because it's a pretty big bet that the nigerian government's making we think it's the right choice we can provide better service higher uptime additional services on top of energy that i talked about earlier that a centralized utility cannot right and so it makes sense to for private companies to come in and provide those types of of, of services but not like I said, not all governments are, are uh, on the same train, and you see a lot of resistance to this notion of a transition. So it's going to depend uh, by country, and you know I think that at the end of the day, what I'm hoping anyway is that economics win the day, right? Because as Ben talked about earlier, there is no argument that you can make today to stay with legacy solutions, fossil fuel solutions. For sure, coal's out of out out of the picture. Natural gas has a role to play in the interim and it should play that role. But, you know, the economics of renewables are pretty straightforward. And, you know, I think one last point I'll make is that I think there's a, a generational transition that needs to happen as well. You have a lot of people running the energy systems in these countries that were trained, not to, because of any fault of their own, but trained in a, in a, in a environment that is no longer fit for purpose, right? And so there's a huge amount of learning that needs to happen. But also what's so exciting, I mean, we have 50 people in Abuja, Nigeria, running our operation there. They are so young. The whole nation is averages 20 years old, right? So you have a new generation of people coming up who are from the modern energy era. And as soon as that generation starts to gain more foothold, I think this transition is just going to take off. So that, that's really exciting for me. Um, just to add to that too, um, one thought from my side, and, and 
I think Will made a really good point, which is that there's there's sort of there's a patchwork of sort of acceptance or or interest from national governments in the region around private investment in infrastructure, right? And and part of that may come very legitimately from concerns around sort of handing over what is critical infrastructure to private players, right? Especially when you're thinking about concessions and merchant agreements for distribution and transmission lines on the grid, you know, that's that's critical infrastructure. And there's naturally some resistance in some places to, to sort of what that interplay looks like between what is the role of the public sector and what is the role of the private sector? And is the public sector willing to cede ground to the private sector for the development gains that will come from providing that electricity access that the public sector is not currently providing. And that's a rub. And I think, you know, one of the things that we, we talked about in the paper too is, you know, there's sort of this question that will increasingly be posed to state-owned utilities in the region, which is, you know, what does the relationship look like between the decentralized renewable sector, particularly from private sector players, and, you know, centralized public state utilities who to date have mostly sort of failed to meet their universal service mandate uh, almost every utility in the region fails to recover its costs. And, you know, the, the role for that, those utilities, you know, may change over time, right? And, and the question is sort of, will they cooperate or will they compete? And what does, that, what does that look like? And one of the ways that we see sort of around that becoming a conflict or becoming an issue, um, where it has started to kind of cause some sparks in the region over the last year or two, where there have been some, you know, regulatory changes or uh, tariff rules that have changed and things that have made it more difficult for private sector players to serve these customers. You know, one of the things that we think might change change that is integrated electrification planning. So, so we've actually built a, a really exciting new tool that looks geospatially at population clusters and electricity demand, maps the existing grid infrastructure, maps the existing off-grid infrastructure, and you can start to assess, okay, where might it make sense in a region for a state utility or even a private uh, centralized utility in the few places in the region where they do exist to extend the grid. Um, where is grid extension most sensible? Where is the diesel displacement opportunity the largest? Where might it be suitable to build a mini grid, right? And what is the total addressable market for each of these segments? And how can we start to think about carving up that opportunity and, and allocating it appropriately so that it's cost efficient, right? So that we don't have... I think Will and I have used this example in conversations in the past so that we don't have these sectors sort of stepping on each other's toes and making sure that a lot of the risks that come from building rural private infrastructure like Husk does, one of the largest being sort of a stranded asset risk, right? Uh, what happens if the utility extends the grid to the place where you've built a private mini grid and you have a you have 10-year debt and a you know medium-term payback tenor and the grid shows up before that is up or before your concession is over or you know before your long-term contract is is ended there's a lot of questions like that and i think one of the main ways that, that you know this is sort of a, a bottom up grid in in that sense right i mean this this electricity infrastructure is being built from the bottom up in a lot of senses um so what are some really targeted and sort of data-driven ways that this the sector can divide up the opportunity appropriately and in the most cost-efficient way to provide the, the most appropriate type of electricity? So for some residential consumers, you don't need to build a whole utility-scale power plant and a bunch of transmission and distribution. They can meet their needs with a mini-grid or even maybe a standalone solar system or a hybrid solution of some kind. And in other places, you know, rural manufacturing needs larger scale energy. And maybe that's a place where we do need to extend the grid. So just thinking a little bit smarter about how to divide that up. And that, that's a big push that's that's come in the region's electricity planning market for the last few years. But uh, we at Woodmac are trying to find some ways to help, help move that forward. Um, we've built a new tool to help us do that.
And if people wanted to get access to that tool, where could they access it? Uh, there's a link on the Horizons page where you can uh, request more information and you'll end up getting routed to me. So before we wrap up, one of the comments you'd made earlier, Will, was a little bit about the transition with electricity from lighting and mobile phone charging to creating an ecosystem where citizens can have jobs and they can actually empower themselves. Now, I know to get there, there's a role of policy and a role of infrastructure. Do you have any comments about what the road to get there actually looks like? Ben talked earlier about integrated energy planning. And if as the planning gets better and the tools like Woodmac have created start to come into the into play, you know, you have a, a great opportunity to identify where the communities that uh, are out there today can best utilize different types of solutions, right? There are very remote areas that are going to only be able to use standalone solar solutions that are sort of micro and smaller scale. But there are also a ton of communities, small towns, villages, where there's already a significant amount of economic activity. And companies like us can come in and provide mini grids that not only provide electricity, but also work with the community. You know, we, we're, we're in there for 20, 25 years, right? We're partners in, the, in those communities. So it's, it's beholden on us not only to provide them with electricity, but also to work with the entrepreneurs in the town potential entrepreneurs in the town to provide financing and credit if needed to purchase equipment and machines or appliances, but also to help them understand, you know, the way that they can use power more to their advantage, you know, to extend the life of the the, the, the hours of their business on a daily basis. You know, is there an opportunity to open new stores? So, you know, we, we look at each community that we're in as a long-term investment, not just for energy infrastructure provision, but also for helping to foster that type of, of growth, right? And, th and that's going to be really important. The, 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 the interesting thing is that's not really what energy companies do in most places, right? So it's, a, it's sort of unique. Um, and I th so I think that there's a huge role that the technology is already playing. We use a lot of IoT and artificial intelligence to manage these, these grids that are spread out over vast areas. And technology and business model innovation will continue to advance. It will help to to generate more economic activity and jobs in these communities. And we're already seeing it and the savings that they get from, from transitioning from diesel to solar. But I think that, you know, one of the things that we don't often get recognized for that we should is that we are providing additional services and additional value to these communities. If you're a centralized grid operator, all you do is sell electrons, whether you're in the United States or Europe or Africa, you People, you provide electricity and you give somebody a bill and that's the end of the relationship. You know, that is not the case with mini grid or microgrid developers like Husk, where we are, you know, helping to, to drive economic development and social development. So at the same time, though, and this is, I think, the, the crux, we're expected to be, quote unquote, commercially viable. Well, find me a centralized utility in sub-Saharan Africa that's commercially viable. There's two out of whatever, at least at the, the latest World Bank data I've seen. There's two out of 30 or 40 or whatever the number, right? And they get subsidized heavily both on CapEx and OpEx, right? They can cross-subsidize rural connections by, you know, using the revenue from urban customers. We can't do that, right? And we're, but yet we're still expected to be commercially viable on an operational basis, right? Well, so um, that, that doesn't work, right, in the long term. You have to be able to, if you buy into this public-private partnership concept, you have to create a level playing field that allows private sector players, if needed, to access some sort of operational subsidy. There's already CapEx subsidies that are in the market that allow us mm -hmm. to enter. We don't need them. I mean, Husk was created without those types of subsidies in mind. 
But if we're talking about reaching more marginal communities where, you know, people don't have the ability to pay, then, you know, then you're starting to look at operational subsidy. And it, at, at the, in the current structure, there is none for pri- the private sector. So our feeling is that, you know, if you're going to ask us to deliver the, the types of services at the tariff rates that, you know, are still affordable, then there needs to be some level of support, right? Whether it's the grid or the microgrid, right? But there has to be some equalized level of support, and that currently doesn't exist. I think that's an important thing that we need to figure out sooner than later. I have one last question, and Ben, it is absolutely directed to you. Looking over the Horizons report, you talk about the utility 3.0. Can you explain to us what that is and how it differs as a business model from utility 1.0 and 2.0? Sure. Yeah. So as Will mentioned, right, there are maybe two utilities in the region, central state utilities that are sort of commercially viable or that recover their costs or, or you know, have a, a comfortable net margin. And you know, frankly, most of the utilities in the region are pretty remedial at what we would call utility 1.0, which is this source to sink electricity provision, right? A company generates, transmits, and distributes that electricity to an end customer who consumes it and pays for it. That's utility 1.0. That's the way the electricity industry has been built for the last hundred years. That's why we have natural monopolies uh, to begin with in the sector. And even after waves across the world, different waves of liberalization and unbundling of the power sector, that was still true. It was just broken up into smaller pieces, right? Maybe there's different ownership or different structures for you know the ownership of that generation, transmission, and distribution. But ultimately, it was a, a one-way relationship. You generate it, transmit it, distribute it, sell it to a customer who pays you for it. That's it. Utility 2.0 is, you know, often what we would consider maybe like the evolution that's happening at the quote unquote grid edge, which basically means that there's bi-directional relationship between utilities and customers that's forming. So we see that when customers install rooftop solar behind the meter, or if they have a battery storage system or an electric vehicle, or even a, you know, something like a smart thermostat, which allows them to participate in demand response markets, which basically means that if the utility has a lot of demand and it's it's peaking and it's going to cause the price to go up or cost the utility a lot of money, they can pay the customer some money to turn down their thermostat or, you know, do their, you know, run their washing machine at a different time in the day, things like that. Um, And that means that the customer has a value proposition to add to the utility and the utility has a value proposition for the customer. So it's a bi-directional relationship. What I see is, you know, maybe it's a bit cheeky, but what I call utility 3.0 is is sort of this evolution that's happening starting beyond the grid in sub-Saharan Africa mostly where, you know, we see this pay-as-you-go value chain, right? So a lot of these standalone solar companies and mini-grid companies like Husk often bill these customers on a pay-as-you-go basis. So if you think about like a prepaid mobile phone where you buy minutes and top up your balance over time, it could work the same way for electricity. And a lot of times that happens over a like a mobile GSM connection. So what that means is that you have sort of this digital relationship with a customer that you can actually stack additional value on top of. So, you know, where you are building a physical last mile distribution network to sell these products or build these products in rural areas, you can also sell other products, right, uh, alongside that. That could be appliances that these systems power. It could be other sort of fast moving consumer goods or other physical products that you know, you can sort of share the what we call last mile rails with those products. Also, you have digital relationships. So that means that if you're getting payment data from a customer on how often they top up their balance or repay the loan that they've taken out uh, to pay for this system, 
You can start to measure their credit and then you can understand their credit worthiness and start to offer them other types of financial products like insurance or loans, you know, for school fees, crop insurance, things along those lines. And then also what we're starting to see from some companies is that you can actually start to offer other adjacent utility business models. So Will mentioned that water service provision is something that Husk is is considering piloting. You know, we're also seeing some companies offer rural internet service. And in fact, this is actually starting to work the other way, right? So there's been a lot of strategic investment into decentralized renewable energy companies operating off the grid from global energy players like NG and EDF and Total and Shell and bunch of others. And and one of the reasons that they're actually interested in this space is because we see that there's sort of a, a learning that can happen across this, this medium of this utility 3.0 business model. And so a lot of these companies are actually starting to see, well, what does it mean for us to adopt this customer-centric service provision type model in other parts of our business and other parts of the world. In fact, the learnings even translate to other state utilities. So actually just last week, I was very excited to see an article about Kenya Power, the state utility in Kenya, which is now starting to offer fixed internet services to its commercial customers. So alongside electricity, using the same poles and wires that transmit electrons, they'll be able to transmit bits and sell bits to their customers using the same infrastructure And this is a way for Kenya Power to diversify its revenue streams. So we're seeing this evolution happen in real time. It's starting beyond the grid. It's migrating and making its way into the centralized utility marketplace in the region. And it has implications for uh, companies around the world who are sort of thinking about the next evolution of the utility business model. And, And I see this happening in the short term, in some small ways like this, and sort of being really, really transformational over time. It has implications for the way that the the grid and electricity infrastructure gets built from the bottom up in sub-Saharan Africa, but it also has implications for the way that, you know, first utility in the UK, which is now owned by Shell, is starting to sell internet service, home security systems. They're starting to offer discounts at petrol filling stations for their customers. They have a, an opt-in option for 100% renewable energy. Uh, we're seeing this evolution happen both you know, in the UK, we're seeing it in Kenya, um, and we're seeing it uh, you know, beyond the grid across sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you both. This has been a truly, truly insightful conversation today. William, first up, is there anyone you'd like to give a special thank you or shout out to today? Uh, my mom. Hey, mom. How you doing? And then also, I, I love, I love, I, I think I have to give uh, all the credits due to the teams that I work with closely uh, in India, in the, the, our headquarters in Patna, in the state of Bihar, as well as the team in Abuja, uh, the capital of Nigeria. Those, the, those are the folks that are doing the hard work on the ground, and, and they deserve all the credit. Where can listeners learn more about the work that you are doing? You can find us at huskpowersystems.com. We're doing our, redoing our website, so hopefully it'll be a, a lot better looking in the next uh, few weeks. Or we're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. You can find us, Husk Power. Ben, anyone you'd like to give a special shout out or thank you to today? Give a shout out to my daughter, who was awake for like four hours last night, um, has given me the mental clarity to have this conversation, um, but also to just the energy access sector and, and the, the African power sector writ large. Um, too many people to name, but... Uh, as somebody who covers this market, I am just continually amazed by the innovation, the resilience, uh, just the the ingenuity and creativity and grit of this sector and all the people that work in it. There's, there's sort of a maybe a magnetism of this sector to attract just 
absolutely amazing people. Um, and the people that I get to work with and support and, and just kind of this industry that I get to be a part of is, is just really, really special. So to those of you who are in that space that are listening, um, thank you. And to those of you who are listening that are not in that space and are looking to do something interesting and meaningful and, and something that will change the world, uh, take a look at this market. And where can listeners learn more about the work that you and your team are doing to develop these insightful analyses and reports? So that's a good question. Um, so woodmac.com is a good place to start. I would point folks to the Horizons piece that we've been referencing throughout this paper. I'm sure it will be linked in the show notes. That's a really good summary of a lot of the, the points that we've been making here today. There's a, a contact us form at the bottom of that page. Um, it'd be great if you have interest or questions um, or want to learn more about some of the work that we've done on mini grids and solar home systems. Uh, we've done a lot of work on diesel displacement and commercial and industrial solar. We've done work on mini grid policy, utility business model transformation. And then we've got this really exciting new least cost electrification tool, which should be able to really change the game in terms of understanding the opportunities in this space. Um, so so feel free to check out woodmac.com, read the, read the report, and then get in touch with us um, through those channels. And then feel free to find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera, as well um, to reach out directly. Um, but yeah, look forward to hearing from many of you as we uh, you know, continue on this journey together. As demand grows in sub-Saharan Africa, how they respond to it will fundamentally reshape the trajectory of global electricity demand. The evolution of the utility business model is an essential piece in the energy transition puzzle. Decentralized bottoms-up solar and storage grids could not only reshape Africa's energy future, but carry important lessons for utility business models around the world. These trends also present a narrow set of options for the region's state utilities and the opportunity to earn healthy returns to the tune of $350 billion by addressing one of the energy transition's largest challenges as it unfolds over the coming decades. Thank you for joining us for the March edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here, though, because now we're going to leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks, Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, Chief Analyst at Wood Mackenzie. At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topics. So here they are. The world wants to get to net zero, but not every country starts from the same place. The developed world of mature economies needs to set the pace on decarbonisation. It's a different matter for the developing world, and Africa, as we've heard, has its unique challenges. The continent is rich in energy resources, fossil fuels, as well as low-carbon sources such as solar, wind and hydro. There's tremendous economic growth. Many African countries can double gross domestic product over the next 30 years. But energy access is a major challenge, with 800 million people today without electricity. The old utility model has failed. The big opportunity lies in decentralised solar and storage grids that can reshape not only Africa's future, but other parts of the developing world too. Delivering energy access can be part of the just transition mapped out in COP26. The $350 billion of investment by 2030 is also a big growth opportunity for investors in low-carbon power. Thanks for listening to the February edition of Horizons. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Next month, we turn our attention to the energy crisis and how it could help or hinder 
the energy transition. Bye for now.